before today? It means you're old. So, um, we should take this show on the road. Um, let, me, let me say, <laughs> trying to shift gears to something more serious, I want to invite you, if you have not been at one of the other services this morning for the cantata, I want to invite you to stick around for the next service. It's a beautiful cantata. You will be blessed. Uh, I know many of you have already been and, and are here in worship, but I do want to really, really encourage you to stick around this morning because it really is a wonderful um, way to, to get a message in, in song and, and to let the, the music speak to you, as we do in, in all our worship services. So I want to, uh, want to invite you to that. And then I also want to invite you now, we're going to, uh, on this Palm Sunday, uh, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read the scripture that at least Matthew's account of that day, of that triumphal entry. Uh, scripture that, that obviously resonates on the day that we celebrate that, but, but it's something that I've been kind of reflecting on for, for a little while now um, in my own time of prayer and, and reflection and, and just kind of, as I challenge us often to, to read with, with fresh eyes, for, for some of us, these stories are so familiar. Now, Palm Sunday and, and the stories around Easter. And, and that familiarity can be detrimental sometimes when we allow the, the impact, we allow the events to, to become, um, that we just kind of gloss over it sometimes. And so what I try to do is, is to, to sometimes spend some time reading Scripture again repetitively and allowing it to try to to speak to, to me in a new way, because scripture ne we don't exhaust scripture. There's at no point when you're ever going to say to me, yeah, I've got the Bible covered. God said everything he can say through the scripture, because it's fresh every time. And so we're going to turn to a very familiar story, but we're going to approach it, I hope, with, with maybe a, some fresh eyes and, and a little bit of a, of a fresh perspective. So let's, again, hear these words, or you can follow on the screens in front of you. Uh, G uh, Matthew 21 verses 1 through 11. This is Jesus' uh, triumphal entry, or, or Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king, as my Bible subheads it. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus said to, sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, Say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Brothers and sisters, we pray God's blessing here on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, we, uh, we open our hearts and we pray that we'd open our eyes to see your word 
to hear your word, to be open to a fresh voice, a new perspective, a, a deeper understanding of the significance of this day and what it means for us, the challenges you speak into our lives as followers of Jesus. These moments are yours, Lord. Do with them as you will. We pray in Christ. Amen. I have heard it said that a couple of our favorite pastimes that we have in this country, well, we have a number of favorite pastimes, but a couple of our favorite pastimes tie um, intimately together. And, and those pastimes, is, the first is that we love to, to build people up. We love to elevate people to um, idol or hero statures. We do this with, with athletes. You know, we, we build up athletes who, who we admire, who we respect, who are great at what they do. We build up movie stars and actors and actresses who, who appear in things that, that we respect and, and admire. We build them up. We do it with entrepreneurs and businessmen and women who achieve greatness in their field. Uh, we even sometimes do it with politicians, though maybe not so much. Um, but we love to build people up. But the second thing that we love to do is to tear them back down. And I say we corporately. You might be thinking, I don't like to do that, and I hope you don't. But, but we seem to, to celebrate that or to revel in it. Maybe not celebrate. We seem to revel in it um, just as much as we do the other. I mean, who doesn't love a good scandal? Tabloids and tabloid TV make a living on this kind of stuff. Social media, uh, the Internet. It's just we, we, we are f drawn to these stories of, of these people that... that achieve greatness that sometimes get knocked back down. And it speaks to this very fleeting, very fickle, and very fragile uh, nature of celebrity, how quickly things can change. And, and we could list people, and I'm not going to, there's no need to, but there's people probably drawing, coming to your mind, and certainly come to mind, of, of those who have achieved the greatest heights, and, and life or choices that they've made has knocked them back down. It's, it's a very fleeting sometimes reality. Winston Churchill understood that. He, he's quoted once after a big speech of, uh, of saying, or somebody came up to him and said, you know, there were 10,000 people in the audience. They said, Winston, isn't it amazing? 10,000 people came to hear you speak. And he looked at him and said, no, not really all that impressive. He said 100,000 would come to watch me hang. <laughs> That's truth. It's truth. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew and experienced firsthand in Palm Sunday, really the, the drastic, startling reality of Palm Sunday. If, if, again, we allow the story to speak fresh to us, the startling reality of Palm Sunday is how fleeting this day of celebrity would be for Jesus. This day in which the, the crowds flocked and the, the, they proclaimed Hosanna and the people stirred, how, how quickly it would turn. Because on Sunday, our cries of Hosanna, and on Friday... He's met with cries of crucify him. Five days, turnaround. Not necessarily the same voices, but the reality is this, this moment that we, we seem to, to really um, glorify in the life of Christ uh, really does not last very long. In fact, he knows it too. The very next thing I've spent a lot of time this week talking about, one of the things I've reflected on is that in the Gospel of Luke, if we were reading out of Luke, I think the 19th chapter, right after the triumphal entry, the scriptures tell us that Jesus looked over the city, and you know what he did? 
he wept. He wept because he knew that, that they, what they were celebrating wasn't who he was. And, and that they, in fact, that the, the, the language of the text says that, that in Jesus' words, they had missed their visiting. They had missed him coming. And so, so this is, this is a, very, a very fleeting moment in the life of Jesus, but it's rich. It's rich in symbolism. Jesus riding the donkey, uh, as Solomon had done in 1 Kings, Solomon had entered the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It fulfills the scripture of Zechariah, that your king is coming to you. It was a symbol of peace. A king would often ride out of a city on a horse, which was a symbol of war, but would enter the city on a donkey, which was a symbol of peace, though probably largely missed by the people of that day. The palm branches, which were a symbol of victory and and had significance in the the life of the Jewish people. That'll wake you up. Um, So so there is all of this going on. And as the crowds began to gather, as his followers began to gather around him and to sing his praises as he comes into the city, I believe this mob effect begins to take place. Passover in Jerusalem is packed with people. Jews who came on pilgrimage to celebrate the, the, the holy time. And so it's just jammed with people. And, and I believe this, you can kind of see this, this growing interest in what's happening because people start to flock around this path that Jesus is taking. And as they do, more people start to, start to gather around because they want to see what's going on. You ever been a part of a mob mentality where something starts to happen and people gravitate to it and more people start to gravitate to it? Not because they know what's going on, because they just know something must be happening. Many, many years ago when I was, when I was in seminary, one morning we were coming on to campus and um, Good Morning America was on campus filming. I believe it was Good Morning America. It was Diane Sawyer and Charles somebody or other. Which one? Which one? Charles? I don't know. And Spencer Christian. You remember those guys? Was that Good Morning America? Okay. And, um, and so everybody, because there was cameras, and we all wanted our moment on television, everybody started to jam in and crowd around where, the, um, where they were filming. And so what would happen is, we were supposed to be going to class, but we skipped that morning. And... Um, Every once in a while, because when they film, they start to move around. And so the game began to be try to figure out where they're going to be next. Because if you could get there ahead of the crowd, you could get in the prime position, right? But every once in a while, crowds would, people would guess. And a bunch of crowds would start moving in the direction. And everybody would start to flock behind them because we thought they must know what's going on. Only for all of us to be gathered and nothing was happening. Because we just kind of got into that mob mentality, just follow the crowd. I think that's kind of what starts to happen. The, the followers are singing and proclaiming Hosanna. And the, the people of the city, many of which who had probably never yet or hadn't yet heard of Jesus. Or maybe they'd heard some of the stories, but they'd not seen him. They begin to crowd in. And into that scene, the question get a- gets asked that is the fundamental question for us to, to ponder this morning. And it's found in verse 10. And it's simply this. Who is this? Who is this? That's the question that challenged me as I, as I read it. That's the challenge the, the, the challenge, the question I think that is the fundamental question of 
of our faith. And, and I really think it is the fundamental question of life. The question that we must all answer when we are confronted with the person of Jesus. Who is this? It's interesting, I, 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 I googled uh, the most important question in life. I do this sometimes just for fun. I just throw a question in there and see what pops up. And there were some interesting things that came up. You know, why, do, why are we here? What's the purpose of our existence? That was one somebody wrote is the most important question. Or how do I, make, how do I live a life of significance? That, that was one of the things that came up as the most important question. Another one that came up is what am I willing to suffer pain for? which is a very fascinating question, which I'm not going to go into because I think it'll be an interesting sermon down the road. So I'm not going to give that one away. But all these important questions. But I would say to us, and not just to us, to all, the, in, in, in all of humanity, the most important question, as important as all those things are, is this. Who is he? When we come face to face with Jesus, who is he? Because it's a question that permeates the Gospels. I, I wasn't quite expecting this as I w- reflected and, and, and wrote this week how often that question, in some form or another, surfaces in the story of Jesus. John the Baptist. Remember John who baptizes Jesus? The voice of heaven he, you know, sees the dove descend, all of this. You remember when John is thrown, or maybe you don't, maybe, maybe you're not familiar with the story, but when John is thrown in prison shortly after, and he's kind of going crazy in prison. And he's dealing with this, this man of the wilderness who's locked up in this cell. And he calls his disciples. And if you remember the story, he wants him to go to Jesus and ask him a question. Are you the one or shall we expect someone else? The question at its root is this. Who are you? Who are you? As John's kind of having to wrestle with that in his own life and his situation. At the end of Jesus' life, a few days after what we celebrate here, Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And he asks him this, are you the king of the Jews? Who are you? Pilate has to wrestle with that question. The disciples consistently wrestle with that question. In Matthew, or in, in earlier in the Gospels, when, when the storm, we talked about this a few weeks ago, when, when Jesus and the disciples are on the boat and the storms come and Jesus is sleeping and he wakes up and you remember he calms the wind and the rain, he calms the storms and they look at him and they say this, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Who is this? Matthew 16. Jesus turns the question to them. At Caesarea Philippi, one of the turning points in the Gospels, he looks to his disciples and he asks them two questions. First he says this, who do people say that I am? And they answer, oh, Elijah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist. And he looks at them and he says this, who do you say that I am? So this question surfaces over and over, but this is the first time it begins to permeate to the wider audience, if you will. Because it says the crowds began to ask them this, themselves this question. Who is this guy? Who is he? And that's the question we must answer. Who is he? As we begin this journey of of Holy Week, as we begin this time of remembering, who is he? You and I have to answer that. And it's a question that has eternal implications. But we can't ignore it. We can't deny it. And and we can't just kind of dismiss it. You know, there's sometimes they say, well, well, he was just a great teacher. 
And, and I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it when he writes about that. He's like, you can't dismiss him as a great teacher. You can't just write him off that way because either he was who he says he was, the son of God, or he was a lunatic. That's what C.S. Lewis, either he was the son of God or he was a lunatic. He was a madman because we would treat anybody who made the claims Jesus made as a nut. I don't care how good a teacher they were. If somebody came in here, I mean, you just imagine somebody walked up to you, maybe somebody you knew, maybe somebody who, who you admired and started to tell you, well, by the way, I am the incarnate Son of God. I am God made flesh. I am, I am very God of very God. If, if, if that happened, you would start to back up. You'd start to put a little distance. I, I'd venture to say that you and I would both look a little sideways at that person. We have to come to, to a conclusion. We have to make a decision. Is Jesus who he says he is? Or was he just a little off his rocker? Who is this? As we approach Holy Week, we approach Easter, we need to ask ourselves that. That needs to be the question that frames our thoughts. Who is this? Because the importance of that answer is not into what we say. It's how does it shape what we do? You know, there are a lot of people that know a lot about Jesus. A lot of people that know scriptures. A lot of people that, that know theology. A lot of people that, 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 can, that can tell you the difference between um, denominations and practices. But you know, all of those things fall away in light of, of that question. Who is this and how does that begin to shape the way that we live our lives? Because that's why the crowd falls away. That's where, that's where the, the, the problem is that they, they, they had all the right words on Palm Sunday. But they couldn't put those words in action. Because Jesus made this, in their minds, he made this fundamental flaw. He made this mistake. He kept talking about the way that we're supposed to live our lives. In those days after that triumphal entry, he kept talking about things like radical commitment. He kept talking about things like sacrifice. He kept talking about things like we're called to love each other regardless of our differences and disagreements. He didn't talk about the things John alluded to in his prayer this morning. He didn't talk about the things they wanted to hear, like military conquest. He didn't talk about things like death to the Romans. See, that's what they wanted. And so when they started to realize that this Hosanna, this one who comes in the name of the Lord, this one who we're singing praises to, that this means we got to do something radically different than the way that we're comfortable we got to do something that calls us to a life that isn't what we expected it to be. When the rubber met the road, they hit the road. And they turned away. And whether they were there on the moment that, that the cries of crucify rang out for Jesus, they were at the very least indifferent to him. Because it wasn't about what they said, but it was about were they willing to put their faith into action? Were they in willing to invest themselves into the life that this Messiah was calling them to lead? And that's what I say to us becomes the evidence of our answer to that question, who is this? We can gather and we can sing the songs of praise and we can proclaim our prayers and our confessions of faith and that matters, that's important. 
But if it doesn't take root and change the way we live when we walk out of here, is it real? Does it truly make a difference? I profess that the world needs less people that profess Christ with their lips and more people that evidence him with their lifestyle. And I need to do a better job of that. I need to be more faithful to that. Who is this? We're called to be witnesses to Christ and to live that life that he has called us to, to exemplify that faith that we profess, to share the love that he has, he has poured into us. It is, it is not easy, but it's exactly the example that Christ calls us to. That becomes our challenge, not just for Holy Week, not just for today, but through the days of our life. How do we answer that fundamental question, who is this? The scriptures answered over and over again. At his baptism, the voice of God was rang out. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Even the demons that he would cast out proclaimed who he was. And when Jesus came into the city, Peter, you are the Messiah. He professes it. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's proclaiming it through the symbolism, the donkey, the palms. He's announcing who he is. All of that matters. But here's what matters most. Who do you say he is? Who do you say he is? As we journey this week together, let that question permeate your heart, your mind, your heart, your mind, and begin to shape what you do so that what we say would be evidenced by the way that we live. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, we, uh, we, we invite you to challenge us to greater faithfulness and obedience that we would live lives that, that bear witness to the truth that we proclaim here. That to that question of who you are, we say you are the Messiah, Son of God, Savior. We sing your hosannas. Help us to witness by our lives to your love. In this journey of the next few days together, this next week, as we prepare for the celebration of Easter, help us to remember to open our hearts to your Holy Spirit and to allow you to move our lives to greater faithfulness and obedience. We pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.